Quick disclaimer, this week there's some stronger than usual violence and guys being menacing towards women. Please see the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Fatima, a warrior woman from Arabic literature. And we'll see that no amount of camels is worth your family, that you'll want to coordinate your attacks with your enemy so that someone can be there to fight them, and how poetry can mess up your life in a way that isn't choosing to be an English major. The creature this week is the Groot Slang, the snake with diamond eyes who probably isn't Vin Diesel. This is Myths and Legends, episode 333, Resolve. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Written in the 12th century, but set in the 7th and 8th centuries, the tale of Lady Delhema, or the epic of Commander Dat Elhema, or the tale of Princess Fatima, warrior woman, depending on what translation you go with. Well, it's the story of a warrior woman who doesn't take what the world offers her, who rises above no matter what, but we aren't starting with Fatima. We're going back to her great-great-great-grandfather's people, camel nomads and raiders, who have a tragic offer for an elderly man. The elderly man was now rich beyond his wildest imaginings. He had a thousand camels and a hundred gold dinar. His people were free because of him because of her. Al-Rabab had caught the conqueror's eye. Al-Harith had rode in to raid their village. He could have just taken her. There was no right and wrong out here, only swords and spears and those who were willing to use them to take what they wanted. The elderly man begged Al-Harith with tears in his eyes, follow the prophet's example. Don't take her by force. Marry her. He heard the gas from Al-Rabab, his daughter, when he said that, but it was the only way, the only way she wouldn't just be taken and enslaved, the only way the village wouldn't burn, and it worked. Al-Harith did marry her. The riches of a hundred villages were the dowry. As the elderly man looked down on his herd, which outnumbered his village by at least a factor of five and more gold than he'd ever seen in his lifetime, he couldn't stop crying. He would trade it all to have her back. Al-Rabab rode with her new husband through the wilderness and, to her surprise, found him kind. She grew to love him, too. Soon, she became pregnant. Before she even knew, she began to have dreams. Dreams of her dress lifting in a beautiful, bright light that torched the world. She was told by the wise man her husband called into the camp the following morning that the child, her son, would be unmatched, extraordinary, great, wise, good-looking if that mattered. The wise man had grown quiet. But as soon as the child is safe in the world, the mother will die. The tent looked to Arabab, who breathed deeply. In all she had seen of the world, in her short life so far, one thing was certain, death. It came for the rich, 
and it came for the poor, the young, and the old. If this was her fate, this was her fate. At least, if she died, she would know her child was safe in the world. We need to leave. The servant tore into Arabab's tent. There was shouting outside. There had been shouting for days. Ever since Al-Harith, Arabab's husband, took ill and died. They were shouting about the herds, shouting about the gold, shouting about her. Arabab was, once again, a prize. She was the chieftain's wife. And while she knew tradition dictated that she must, someday, remarry, she vowed to never be under the control of a man again. And besides, she knew what this held for her child. There couldn't be a rival. She was ready to leave when the servant arrived. Al-Rabab had excused herself from the dinner and gone to bed early, starting packing the moment she was alone. Even her handmaids didn't know what she was planning. They would leave the moment it was dark. That way they would avoid horses on the road and be a whole day's travel away before dawn. And it worked. They walked all night through the desert. Come morning, the servant called out that there was a village not far away. When they finally arrived at the village, it was less a village and more a single hut. It was by a stream, far away from anyone. Our Bob was about to ask what this was, when the servant pushed her inside, he said for years, years, he had been in love with her. It was the perfect opportunity. She couldn't go back. She couldn't go on. They were too far away from anyone. She would be all his. He took a step forward, and Arabab cried out. He laughed. Uh, she could scream all she wanted. They were so far out in the wilderness that no one would ever hear her. He took another step, and she kept screaming. It quickly became apparent that she wasn't screaming because of him, though he was odious. She was screaming because she was about to become a parent. The baby was on his way. The servant was confused, and Al-Rabab didn't pay him any attention as she pushed past the man and rushed out to the stream. It was her first child, but he was there in a matter of moments. She used a sharp stone to cut the umbilical cord and she held her son close. As he latched, she forgot about everything, about being taken away from her home, about her late husband's tragic death, even about the servant, who was incensed that she had given birth. Hopefully you're picking up hints that he's not a rational or a good man, and that would be confirmed by him driving a sword through Arabab's back. He left as she lurched over, dead. He muttered something about being enslaved by the father, and he wouldn't spend the rest of his life serving the son. It was two days later that Dareem, a local ruler, found them. He had been out hunting to take his mind off losing another child. His wife had become pregnant again, and again, it ended in pain and weeping for both of them. Dareem chased a herd to the area where it dispersed and, drinking from the stream, he looked up to see the form of Al-Rabab, the locusts swarming around her. 
Doreen rose and went to investigate. The locusts crawled on her and Doreen backed up. Something moved. He waved the insects away, revealing a baby, alive, still latched on his deceased mother and drinking. Doreen didn't know how this was possible. He gathered the child and went home. He explained everything to his wife, how he had found the child still suckling with Jundaba locusts to protect him from the sun. He said it was a miracle. She said it sounded like locusts just being locusts and swarming a body, but okay, that was a nice thought. Still, when she saw the baby, she couldn't help but feel like fate had brought him to them. So long they had tried, and yet, here was their son. Dream went back to bury Al-Rabab. When he returned, he found his wife, Husna, nursing the baby, singing softly to him. They named him Jumdaba, because the locusts had protected him. Or just been normal locusts, who knows. Hi, I'm Dareem, Dareem said to the woman out with her cattle. Those are some real nice cattle you have there, Dareem smiled. The woman didn't respond. She just stared at the man and gripped her staff. So, yeah, uh, I have a hundred warriors with me and I like your cattle, dot, dot, dot. The woman still didn't alter her face at all. It's like I'm speaking to a rock, Dareem said. I'm taking your cattle. That's the subtext of what's happening here, and I guess now the text. Round them up, boys. The first three warriors that rode out to get the woman's cattle, well, they were dead before they hit the ground. Okay, rude, Dareem said. Look, I'm taking your cattle. That's the way the world works. It's fully within my rights to violate your rights if I have enough guys with weapons on my side. He could see that she wasn't budging. Fine. Whatever. He threw up his hands, and another dozen or so warriors rushed out to gather the cattle and kill anyone that got in their way, Dareem enunciated for effect. The next dozen or so on the ground with walking stick cracks in their head, Dareem yelled out for the rest of them to attack. They hesitated. And soon there was a path of unconscious warriors leading up to Dareem's horse. Dareem caught the staff to the ribs, and flew from his horse. She wrenched Dream's turban from his head and bound him with it before slapping his horse on the rear. The rest of the warriors fled with it. We'll see Jindaba come home from school to discover what's happened to his family, but that will be right after this. mom. Jindaba kissed his mother, Husna. I'm home from my Quranic school and had his mother been crying? She had. You see, in the time since adopting Jindaba, Dareem and Husna had 10 more sons. They were all big, strapping, beefy guys. And they all ended up exactly like their father when they went to Al-Shamta's fortress to challenge her for the father's freedom. 
all ended up dehorsed and hogtied with their own turbans. Jundaba rode at once for Al-Shamta's fortress. If he failed to protect them, he could hardly consider himself part of Durim's family. He rode until, off in the distance, he saw a woman riding toward him. Jundaba slowed. He nodded, and she said he was a strange one, coming to the valley to seek his own demise. She would be happy to guide him there. He stepped down. He said that he came to tear this valley apart and then kill her. He wasn't really one for banter. He drew his sword. She sighed. He was young, so she would make this quick. And then he would be like his father and brothers. She charged him with a sword thrust. A few hours later, Al-Shamta was dead on a desert road. Dundaba was victorious. Wow, I honestly going to say it, I thought you were going to marry her, Dareem said. After the fort surrendered and Jindaba went to work untying his family, Jindaba said, marry? Why? Dareem said, I don't know, it just felt right, like two great warriors battling against each other on the road. Yeah, we battled and I won, Jindaba pointed out. Yeah, no, I, I get it, Dareem said. It was just like all the tension between them. She was a named character too. It's just Okay, it's just surprising, is all. Jundaba unwound his father and brother's turbans, freeing them. Contrary to the fears of the fortress of people, Jundaba simply left. He told them it was their leader, not them. They should not follow her example of, I guess, defending herself when people wanted to steal her herds. Jundaba left them in peace. Hey, so... Noticed you looking vengeful? Husna said to her husband, Dareem. Dareem was watching Jindaba, chumming around with his ten brothers. Dareem said he's more popular than me. What? Husna looked out. Jindaba? Yeah, he's more popular than me now. Dareem crossed his arms and sneered. He's just like his father. He's... Just like you? Doreen paced the room, saying that after they found Jundaba, he looked into the woman out there by the river. He followed up with some tribes. He learned that Al-Harith, the great raider, had died after falling ill. His pregnant wife had disappeared that night with an enslaved man. Jundaba is just like his father, taking over tribes. They took him in and raised him as their own. He's a cuckoo. There was a brief look of confusion. The cuckoo lays its own eggs in another bird's nest, which then hatch and then pushes out the other eggs, tricking the parents into raising it. It's a brood parasite, yes, I know, Husna said. Thing was, Jundaba saved Dareem's life. He thought that Dareem was his father. Dareem laughed. <laughs> Not for long. You, you told him? Husna gasped. Then Dareem shook his head. Oh, no, yeah, that probably needed some context. Jundaba wasn't going to think Dareem was his father because Jundaba wasn't going to be thinking anything at all. Because Dareem was going to have him murdered. Right now. Husna shrieked as she watched the assassin lurking up to Jundaba while her adopted son had his back turned. Dareem shrieked when Jundaba easily handled the assassin. He kicked open the door to his father's house. 
bloody sword in hand. A word. Dareem smiled. Hi, son. Why did the assassin say a gift for the son of Al-Harith from Dareem before trying to stab me? Jundaba demanded. Dareem's smile faded. Uh, Boys, Jundaba has gone mad. He's, He's trying to murder me. The only thing that did was make it so Dareem had to watch two of his sons die before dying himself by Jundaba's hand. Rather than kill more of his brothers, Jundaba fled into the night. The next few years were tough, and also weird. Jundaba had to grapple with the fact that he killed his adoptive father, and couldn't stop thinking of the story. The story of the baby whose mother died nursing him. A story he heard again from a laughing traveler by the fire at a camp on his travels. That man was Salam, the servant who had helped his mother and then very much did not help his mother. And Jundaba took his revenge. Jundaba traveled far and wide. He battled the chief of a nearby tribe and became its leader, and then used that tribe to blockade Damascus, low-key threatening the life of the caliph. The caliph set Jundaba up with his wife. A bunch of stuff happens that we're going to skip over, Basically, Jundaba has this really great mare that everyone wants to steal, and eventually one does manage to steal it. Worse, Jundaba was wounded. He and his wife left the tribe before they could be challenged, and with nowhere else to go, he went home. Atif, his brother, who now led the tribe, said Jundaba had a lot of nerve coming back. And then he laughed, ah, he's just kidding, no hard feelings. Jundaba said, how could that possibly be the case? Ataf replied, well, he had been third in line, and Jundaba had cleared out some space at the top, if you know what I mean. Anyway, Jundaba was welcome to stay. Stay over there. Far, far over there. He pointed to the tent that they had to squint to see. Ataf said, what? There's, it's the optics of it all. Jundaba wouldn't be attacked and he could live in peace, but he did kill dad. Jundaba knew that the end was coming. His wound wasn't healing and he... He was tired. As he looked out from the opening of his tent to the desert sky, he wondered what had it all been for. All the death, strife, loss, just to die out here in the wilderness. He closed his eyes and soon he was hovering above himself and his wife. A visitor glowed before them both. He was told to take heart. He would enter paradise, and he would have a son that would, quote, conquer the lands. He should rejoice. Jundaba smiled. In the morning, his wife discovered that he had died in the night. He was shrouded and buried and mourned, and his past was forgotten. A few weeks later, though, the wife realized that she was pregnant. She did find kindness in the family of Ataf and his wife, who, upon being told about the pregnant woman's plight, murmured, treat others as you want to be remembered. They took her in. Well, they have to go, Ataf declared about Sasa the child of Jundaba. Sasa was 15 now. So was Lila, 
Lila was Atta's daughter with his wife. The issue? Well, poetry, of course. Sasa was out walking in the wilderness, and Lila was out gathering flowers, and Sasa just vomited out some poetry. It was about this beautiful girl he loved but could never be with, a heart-rending tale of star-crossed lovers, and... Okay, you, you gotta stop that, Lila said to Sasa. Sasa's face became warm. Uh... He tried the technique of, oh, that, no, that wasn't about you. I was talking about this other amazing girl that I've known my whole life and I've recently discovered feelings for because my body is going through a bunch of changes. You wouldn't know her. She goes to, like, a different school. Lila shrugged. Okay, cool. Probably still cut it out, though. She walked off. She maybe bought it. And her mom, not wanting Sasa to be exiled, executed, or exsanguinated, excused the exclamation as an extended exposition of some extravagant example and nothing related to real life. The father, Ataf, though, was not so exonerative. When the story traveled from the servants that surrounded Lila that day in the wilderness to his ear, his concern? Sasa's poetry was too good. He was worried, quote, that his daughter's charms might be exposed and even made popular and unforgettable through poetry. son, the mother said to her son, Sasa. She said, being a teenager can be difficult. She knew. You know what was also difficult, though? Forced exile and Ataf removing his support. Sasa needed to stop this. Sasa shouted at her in tears and verse, and one translation says that Sasa walked away from this, composing gloomy poetry in his head. And, I mean, We've all been there as a teen, or a really specific subset of teenager to which I belonged have been there as a teen. It's not a rational place, and I'm thankful that my terrible teenage poetry wasn't able to threaten the lives and livelihood of my family. Since the mother could see that Sasa wasn't going to give this up, she dug out Jundaba's tent and went, once again, into the desert. Just about the worst thing that can happen to a heartbroken teenager happened to Sasa after that. He realized that he had a chance. Layla had arrived at the tent Sasa stayed in with his mother when he was out and told his mom that she loved him too. More so, actually. And I mean, Sasa goes out and shouts poetry at the sky, so that's saying something. According to one translation, Lila asked Sasa's mom to kiss his face and relate her own poetry to him. They were made for each other. So now Sasa knew she loved him back, but they still couldn't get married because he was impoverished. He was going to do something about that by wandering off barefoot into the desert. Probably don't do that. Wander off into the desert barefoot, that is. But we'll see how it works out for him. That will, once again, be right after this. Two years later, Sasa crouched beside a river after bending down for a drink. He was sure of it now. He was being followed. The past two years have been good to Sasa. I mean, 
He was still screaming poetry into the night, sad, but his financial position had stabilized. Throughout this story, it seems like a way to quickly infuse some cash or camels into your tribe is just robbing a neighbor tribe. On his previous few raids, Sasa had not only managed to drive thousands of camels back home, but killed the guy who shamed his dad, and he got his dad's horse back. I guess they were two different autonomous groups, so it wasn't, strictly speaking, illegal, but it would cause problems down the road. Problems like guys sneaking up on you on the road, trying to kill you. It's not that Sasa heard the guy sneaking up. The guy was actually better than that, no, he heard him getting mauled by a lion. But Sasa was a good guy. He made a noise and drew the lion to himself, stabbing the lion in the head as it lunged. Sasa pulled the mail from the assassin and discovered Atif, the father of the woman he loved. Stunned and moved that Sasa should save his life, he finally agreed to let Sasa marry his daughter. Now. This is a very long epic, and we haven't even gotten to the main character, the warrior woman Fatima. So we're just going to fast forward through Sasa's life. He did marry Lila, and then he quickly undercut all of his romance and his previous motivations by marrying at least two other women out on his journeys. And both of them were likely Jin, one of which who was beheaded at their wedding. Lila was not down with being one of many wives especially after all they went through to be together. And to his credit, Sasa did want to reconcile. Unfortunately, he was eaten by three panthers on his way home. He died at the age of 38. He did, however, have two children, Zalim with Lila and Moslem with his second wife. To call it sibling rivalry would be putting it pretty lightly. Zalim, when he met the baby as a teenager, tossed the baby brother on the ground and kicked the mother. And Moslem grew to hate his older half-brother, living with his mother's tribe and making war against Zalim, before coming to an uneasy truce with a proposed solution. Baby fight. It's not really a baby fight, more like a baby contest. You see, Zalim and Moslem were old enough now that both of their wives were pregnant at the same time. The deal? Whoever had a boy, that boy would be the rightful ruler of the tribe, and Moslem looked down at his smiling wife and their daughter. Oh, a girl. He called up the midwife. The midwife walked forward. He told her to go talk to Zalim's family. Tell them that Zalim won. Moslem had a son, but he died. The midwife ran off, and Moslem's wife said, Uh, pardon? A dead son was better than a living daughter? That is horrible. Middle ages, what are you going to do? She said not be like that, seriously. Muslim said that it was about to be kind of true. He was going to go leave her in the desert. Can't trust that sort of thing to servants. The kids always come back to kill you. Uh, probably because you left them in the wilderness to die as a baby. We're not doing that, Muslim's wife said. We're not leaving little Fatima. Moslem waved his hands. Don't name her. Well, whatever. She couldn't stay here. He had already sent word about the son, and he didn't want her to be a burden on him. Moslem's wife, realizing that her husband was horrible, but 
Also, it's a minor win that the daughter wasn't going to be exposed in the wilderness, trusted Fatima to the care of a servant, Suda, who just had a son of her own, so she could nurse the girl. They lived like that for 10 years, with the mother visiting Fatima often. Then, the past came calling. The three previous generations building their dynasty on stealing from their neighbors meant that the Tay, a rival tribe to Fatima's, had been rallying their bands. So, the Kalab responded in kind, by rallying their own bands. There was lots of yelling, people getting swords and spears and armor, horses galloping and war cries, and the, the Kalab found the camps of the Tay completely devoid of protection. There, what, there wasn't one warrior there. Zalim's eyes widened. It's a trap. But it wasn't. It wasn't because, at that exact same time, one of the Tay warriors was looking at the unguarded camps of the Kalab and wondering, too, if it was a trap. It wasn't. They just took different paths to each other's camps. So, not knowing that the other warriors were having the exact same conversation, they started looting. They both decided to take a different, third way home, and, wait a minute... Who were those other guys with all our stuff and our women and children as slaves? There was a massive battle there on the road, at the end of which both tribes retreated back to their respective ransacked cities and reevaluated war in general. But there were still some unintentional crossovers. For instance, some of the Tay went with the Kalab, and some of the Kalab went with the Tay. Suda and her two children, or the kids people thought were Suda's two children, Fatima, and Suda's actual son, Marzouk, had been enslaved to the enemies of their people. Slap, Marzouk said, as Fatima slapped the hand of the warrior. He laughed. Marzouk, don't encourage your sister to slap her enslaver. Fatima, don't slap your enslaver. Fatima didn't want to remove the veil from her face, and the man cataloging all the people who had been taken for the allotment to the leaders decided that, whatever, it was not worth the trouble. Fatima said she was no one's slave. She served no one but the creator. It was admirable, for sure, but she was proven wrong because she was, in fact, enslaved. She was enslaved by Ahmed, one of the leaders of the Tay, and she herded camels and horses, and Fatima took the long way home. You see, Fatima knew who she was. She knew the hard truth about her father. First him, and then her people had abandoned her. If she needed help, she would have to come to her own rescue. So she began fashioning weapons out of sticks. She made wooden swords and spears. She took the path around the warriors in the afternoon, practicing in the fields and watching them. She studied their drills, their stances, their attacks. After everyone went to bed in the evening, she would steal out and repeat what she saw. She grew tall and strong, and someone took notice. Hey there. A man called out to her while she was out with the herds. She slowed down and leapt off the animal she wasn't supposed to be riding. Sorry, do I know you? She said as Quarry, 
a warrior, rode closer. No, but you're about to, wink, he said. Fatima grimaced, uh, no? Quarry glowered, said no. No one said no to him. But Fatima did. She unleashed a torrent of words, and before Quarry knew what hit him, she was gone, heading back to Ahmed's house. Despite her bravado, she was trembling. She hadn't been prepared, and she didn't know how far Quarry was prepared to go to get what he wanted. Ahmed listened and sighed. Yeah, all right. He thanked Fatima for bringing this to his attention. Quarry was, as it turned out, Ahmed's subordinate. So Ahmed called him to his office and told him, look, if he was into Fatima, totally fine, he could marry her. Otherwise, leave her alone. Quarry bowed low. Oh, it totally wouldn't happen again. He was just just joking. Ooh, so embarrassing. Babe, you told him me, babe? Quarry found her in a different spot the next day. I thought we had this, like, secret forbidden thing, babe. Things got more menacing after that. But Quarry relented when he took a rock to the face. Several rocks to the face. That evening, Fatima, Quarry, and Ahmed stood before the clan leader. Quarry, cut it out, the clan leader said. You can't keep doing this. Marry her or leave her alone. Quarry did the just joking defense, which the judge didn't buy. And before he wrapped up for the day, Fatima noted that she had something to say. She said that if he harassed her like that and she feared for her safety again, she would kill him. The clan leader laughed. I mean, he was a great warrior, but hey, if he continues to harass her, it was between her and him. Can I tell you a secret? Fatima said from the pile of leaves. She had been running from Quarry and had tripped and fallen. Quarry, who had been chasing the girl he had been court-ordered not to chase, said, uh, okay. Fatima said that she had been worried, not about being with him, she had been excited for that, but that she was worried, worried that if they were together, she would lose her heart without having his. She said if he wanted to be hers, she would be his. Quarry started unhooking his armor and walked toward the girl. Wow! Talk about a miscommunication! So, I can have your hand in marriage, Fatima said, extending her own. Quarry didn't reply that he would literally say anything at all right now, regardless of its veracity, and extended his hand. And, well, he really should have kept his armor on. Fatima grabbed his hand, swept the legs, and before Quarry hit the ground, Fatima had his sword out. When he did hit the ground, his head rolled free. She took a deep breath and walked home. She found Ahmed sitting there. What's that? he said, pointing to her cloak, covered in blood. Oh, she said that she did exactly what she said she would do. She had killed Quarry. You have cost me everything, Ahmed shouted at Fatima. 
who was tied up in one of the tents. And she had. Everything except his tents. Several horses, some enslaved people, armor, weapons, and money. But still a lot of stuff. Everything else had gone to Quarry's family as restitution for the death, even though he had been warned so many times. Still, it had cost Ahmed everything. Now Fatima was going to pay. He unfurled the whip. Fatima shrugged, so he tortured and killed her. Would that actually solve anything? How about instead of all that, he gives her a horse, sword, spear, and armor, and she goes and gets it all back. She said she had, after all, killed one of the best warriors of the Tay, unarmed, with full warning. So Ahmed thought about it. That, you know, that was impressive. Especially for a girl of like, what, 15? He ordered her untied. Okay, on one condition. The wealth can't come from among our people. Fatima nodded. Absolutely. It wouldn't come from among his people. So, where's it going to come from? Her foster brother asked as he walked alongside her. Fatima was in full armor in the saddle. She looked down to Marzouk. They were going home. And they did. She began raiding her own people. First, she triumphed over a man named Dharma and returned his herds to Ahmed to pay not just what he had lost, but for freedom for her, Suda, and Marzouk. She set up her own tents, got Marzouk a horse of his own, and she kept going. She pushed onward until, one day, she found herself crossing spears with one of the leaders of the Kalab, a man named Moslem, her own father. And when the spear points were worn down and nearly gone, Moslem collapsed. He had no idea, but his own daughter, Fatima, had just taken him prisoner. That is where we'll leave it this week. This is a two-parter, so next week we'll finish and also mostly start the story of Fatima. Also, you probably noticed that this is the first week of the month and that this isn't a Greek myth. Apollo needed a little more time. I wasn't happy with the episode, so I pushed it to next month. Finally, real quickly, if you're looking for ad-free and bonus episodes, check us out on Apple Podcasts and on the website at mythpodcast.com membership. The creature this week is the Groot Slang from South Africa. Groot Slang is not Vin Diesel grumbling his way through another Guardians of the Galaxy film. Well, it's not just that. It's also a very jealous snake, or an elephant with a snake tail buddy, who lives in a cave in South Africa. Yes, apparently there's a cave called the Bottomless Pit, or the Wonder Hole, in the Richtersveld, that connects to the sea, about 64 kilometers or 40 miles away. It's also, apparently, full of diamonds. But you have to get by the Groot Slang first. Doing a smog on those diamonds, with possible diamond eyes of its own, the Groot Slang is 40 or 50 feet long and 3 feet wide. The elephant version, which I only found in one book, seems stranger to me. Like, how does that elephant eat? And 
that would just be like a real odd couple situation for the snake part and the elephant part. That feels like a mistranslation or something. Apparently, only one person has ever entered the Wonder Hole and lived to tell about it. Basically, in the 1940s, a guy started lowering himself down, smelled sulfur, dropped his flashlight, bats are scary, and asked to be pulled up. And really, I'm going to be real, if you lose your flashlight before you even enter the cave and the bats are that overwhelming, you probably shouldn't be Indiana Jonesing it through the Wonder Hole anyway. That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we use in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.